We think of Christmas as a joyous time of festivity and celebration and joy. We go to parties, we give gifts, express gratitude and love to the people who are around us. And some even long for, as the song goes, every day to be like this. The Ecclesiastes writer warns us about this. It's better to go into the house of mourning than into the house of feasting. That's a strange verse, but it's just a warning. Don't expect life to be this way all the time, or you will become disgruntled and discouraged. We must never forget the other side of Christmas. I had another lesson prepared for tonight, but I couldn't let this time go by. There were so many things happening at once that needed a response from the church. Sometimes... We just need to say something. Sometimes we just need to acknowledge something, the reality of this other side. And so tonight, we lament, just as we celebrated this morning. In the biblical text, this is clear in a couple of ways. First, because of the birth of Jesus, several two-year-old male babies in Bethlehem area met their demise. In a cruel act of self-protection, Herod called for killing of these children as a means of ridding the world of the Messiah. Can you imagine the sadness and the grief of that occasion? Matthew describes it with an Old Testament prophecy um, that, that Rachel was weeping for her children. Rachel was, of course, the one who died giving birth to Benjamin, and she was buried near the place where the Israelites were taken captive by the Babylonians. And in that original reference, Rachel represents all of Israel, mourning as her children are marched into captivity and a whole generation of God's people are enslaved, taken into a foreign land. But when this is applied to the innocents in Bethlehem, it's like the whole nation is weeping for this terrible loss of the future bound up in these two-year-old children. And, and you can also point to a second group of people to be lamented. Jesus came to provide salvation from sin. Jesus offers us a way to overcome the sin problem. But it also means doom for those who don't choose him, doesn't he? He represents a choice you make. We're grateful. We celebrate having a Savior. But millions, y'all, will face judgment because they didn't. And Jesus is the dividing line, isn't he? Yes, ultimately, it's their choice. We tell ourselves that. But is that also not tragic and sad? I love the Christmas season in so many ways. I love how stretched out it has become. It makes a great difference in the way people act. But this year seems to have pr provided us an abundance of evidence of the other side of this Christmas story. Before I left last weekend for Texas, I went to a funeral for Mandy Gay's dad. That was no expected thing, not that that would make it easier, but it was a sudden thing in her family. And how devastating that is to someone, to anyone. And then I go to Texas for this rare December weekend meeting, which is, I think, a weird time to plan one. I enjoy going to Borger. It's near Amarillo a little bit and seeing some wonderful people that I've come to know over the years. And one of those people I looked forward to seeing had died two weeks before I got there. His widow talked to me. He was an elder. 
He was born in Arkansas, the most avid Razorback fan outside the state of Arkansas, and maybe even some of you within it. Good old boy, always wore a cowboy hat to church and spoke as slow as anyone I've ever met. I didn't get to see him, obviously, but I did get to watch the funeral on video, and it was a privilege. Lots of memories with that guy, but the first night I was there, I got news that this man I dearly loved, who served as an elder in Kennett when I was there, was rushed to St. Bernard's because his lungs were causing problems after lung cancer treatment. I call his wife on the phone and say, I really wish I could be there, but I'm not going to be able to be there till Monday, and I didn't know that on Sunday he would die. And then that night, the next night, there's tornadoes coming to the state of Arkansas, and while I'm in Texas, my heart is in Arkansas, texting so many of you, as so many of you were to others who were in the surrounding areas, making sure all was well and, and just seeing how everybody was, not to mention my own wife who was in the storm shelter. And I was feeling the guilt of all that. And you know the stories that come out of that. On the way back, I hear about this former elder's death. I get back here, and on Monday... The Beesons hear of the sudden death of their grandson, 23 years old. But I do also hear news of a great contribution at Valley View. But while there's a great contribution, and I celebrate the $55,000, which is amazing, I also remember there are three kids going to celebrate Christmas without a mother. This was one little week in time. Yes, Jesus came into the world. He brought good news and a way out of the mess of this fallen world. And even so, the fallen state in this world stays in effect. He doesn't make things different immediately, does he? It's not all fixed yet. He's going to make all things new, and he started making all things new, but he's not made it yet to the full. We haven't experienced that newness yet. We still have tragedy to endure before the fullness of that wonderful thing that Jesus brought us comes to its fullness reality. And in so many ways, knowing that it's going to be better one day, it does make the meantime bearable, but it also tells me it's just a matter of time. It's going to be better. Why not bring it in, God? Why not bring it about? Let's get this over with. It won't be this way forever. But it's going to be this way now, isn't it? Let me share just one story. I know you've heard it. I know you've heard these details. I'm not trying to inform you of anything. I'm, I'm just helping you to put into more specific detail what I'm talking about. The Rackley family, Braggadocia, Arkansas, been through Braggadocia a few times. You blink and that's it. That's all there is. They attend school in the Carothersville School District. Megan teaches kindergarten. Married to Trey. Three-year-old daughter named Lonnie. Seven-year-old first grader named Ava. And a nine-year-old daughter named Annie in third grade. All of them attending Carothersville. They were all doing what you're supposed to do in the middle of a tornado, hunkering down in the tub. But the tornado hit their house with such force. And by the way, they had moved in the Tuesday before, three or four days just got the new house. And it didn't much matter what room they were in. Trey had hold of the youngest, Lonnie. 
She had some gashes and splinters in her eyes when it was all over, but she was largely perfect from the head down because Trey held on to her for dear life with all his might. He had most of his ribs broken, several serious lacerations, a few nights in the hospital maybe. Megan had the other two girls by the hand, at least for a time, and they were tossed all over. She's now fighting for her life in St. Louis with all sorts of awful injuries, with a condition of the brain that in layman's terms would be called shaken baby syndrome, tossed around so badly that those nerves and synopses in her head are just jumbled, found a half a mile from the others. Annie, the oldest, died of those injuries in that field. Trey saw this but was whisked away with Ava in a sheriff's car. And Ava's the talkative, one, the, the, the talkative one of the bunch, the gregarious one, maintains a constant sense of humor and, and, and of joy. And she came home, maybe home now, I don't know. She had surgery on Thursday. Several vertebrae had to be fused together. Never lost consciousness and seems to have remembered it all. The house was picked up, she said, and it slammed down and picked back up and slammed back down and told doctors that she prayed to God that she didn't want to die. She was slammed into the mud and then she was picked up and she was slammed into the mud again. She and her father found each other relatively quickly. This is the same storm that came near you. So why wasn't it you? A terrible experience for many in Truman, Monette, Leechville, so much of Kentucky. And so this Christmas, while a time for joy and present giving and eating, will be a much different experience for this family and so many others. It seems so surreal, doesn't it? And I wonder, what do we say about this? I am a person who, uh, as you know, speaks a lot of words. No amens, thank you very much. Says a lot of words. I've preached long enough to know that words have their limits. Nothing I say, nothing we say is going to make any difference in this. Not going to make anything right or anything make sense. Words don't have that much power. How do I know that? Because this has been a problem for every generation, and no generation has been able to even articulate it, much less resolve it. We can't explain it sufficiently to take away the mental discomfort about living in a, in a fallen world. It's confusing and mysterious. We can't express ourselves powerfully enough to take away anybody else's pain or uncertainty, and we can't even erase the impact of this on future fears with everything that happens when's the next foot to fall this doesn't mean we don't celebrate celebration must not be muted right there's always a cause to celebrate we we did this morning with reflection upon the wonderful rescue operation that God started when he introduced Jesus to us but there's also always cause for lamentation for recognizing the reality and acknowledging the tragedy and mystery of life. The key seems to be in what Jesus did. Jesus came 
and inserted himself into this story and experienced all these kinds of things. He didn't do it in a shortcut. He didn't take on human form for just a little while and fix the problem and then leave. He absorbed the entire thing to experience it all. Death of a loved one. Yes, he knows. Jesus wept. You know the verse, John eleven thirty five. 35. He saw, he looked around and saw the power and the grip that powerlessness of humanity and the, and the brevity of life and the seriousness of death holds on people. And he wept. The word used of him as an agitation, a neighing of a horse in such total sorrow mixed with such total anger that all he could do was let the tears fall. That's the only thing that made any sense. He didn't speak. He just wept. And so what are we to do? What are we to do? I have wished sometimes I had the gift of healing for people. Many, many times. I don't, I don't know anybody else who does. But remember, the resurrection of Lazarus, where he wept, was amazing. But it also meant Lazarus would be the only one to die twice. That's a tragedy. That grief and sorrow just had to be relived all over again at a later time. So many, there are so many things we seek to do. Can we, can we give money to help? And, and sometimes the giving of money, while wonderful, is also a, a way to distance ourselves. If I can give money, I don't have to feel this fully. I, I don't have to really live in this very long. I can just give to it and, 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 and keep myself from it. And I don't want us giving money tonight. You might say to yourself, well, I'm going to put in a storm shelter. That may be wise, but it won't do any good now. So what do we do? I like what Jesus did. And maybe this, is, maybe this is the only cue I have from the text. He sat with it. He sat with people and he sat smack dab in the middle of it. He took it all in. He felt it to the full. That's what Hebrews says is. He felt humanity to the full. He didn't just glimpse over it. He didn't skitter over it. He just immersed himself in it. We often ask, why did he wait so long to return and heal or raise Lazarus? But we're overlooking an important point. He lived with the pending death longer than anyone else did. He knew what was ahead, and he knew that he could heal. He knew that he could heal even without being present, and yet he let it happen, knowing what it's going to do to people, and, and he lived with it and the emotion for days. And when he could raise him from the death, death, he also knew he could heal him from a distance, but he lived with the awareness that this tragedy was out there. Why? Because he knew we have to. We can't do anything about it. And that's what humanity means. We have to live with this. And so he shared our humanity, the Hebrew writer says. Sat there smack dab in the middle of the tension before he did what he could do. He understood it first. So that, Hebrews goes on to say, that he could help those who experience all such things. The power of sitting with sorrow and tension and lament is often overlooked. How long did the seven friends of Job sit with him before they messed it up by saying something? Seven days. The principal at the Carothersville School is a member at Slicer Street, and I, I called her 
And I asked, how did you handle this? School was out the Monday after that weekend, mostly because the power was out for most of that Sunday and Monday. But even so, she called the teachers for a faculty meeting, and she stressed, this is optional. We just need to grieve before the kids get here. And they all came. Dazed in grief, Megan is a kindergarten teacher in terrible shape. One of the students is gone. Two others are in terrible shape. This stuff gets to you, and so the principal, she stands up, and she reads a scripture, she says, and she prays with them, and then let the teachers talk, but no one said anything. They just cried together. Just There was nothing to say. They let it out. And then she said, after a time, you're free to be dismissed. And no one moved. No one left for what seems like forever, she said. They just had to share the grief together. And in the days after that, as school comes back in the next day, emails from all over the country, and these are people they don't know and don't know them, but they felt the need to communicate. We are with you. We don't know you. We've wept. We're, we're changed by this. We want you to know we're going through this with you. And she said, you wouldn't believe the difference, and they made sure to read those to the faculty. Everyone, there's just something universal about this. Even if you don't know them, it was being shared. I saw this again yesterday. The whole family gathers together for Dakota, a memorial for him. And I didn't think, you know, this is a younger generation. Younger generations tend to have a tendency not to appreciate what gatherings like funerals mean. I thought there won't be anybody there. The place was overrun with people. Not seen that many young people in a long time that wasn't a school assembly. And they were milling around and they were telling the stories. And the Beeson said, a bunch of these came last night. They didn't know if they were supposed to come to our house. And we said, come in. And we showed them pictures. And they started telling stories. We just need to sit with it and share it and grieve it for a while. And we have a powerful avenue for this kind of thing. Worship. We gather together like this, no questions asked. We're here together tonight. This thing we're talking about has touched everybody in here to some capacity. No one's sitting here going, I don't understand what you're saying. You know full well what I'm saying. Everybody's been touched by this. It moves us. It hurts us. And we're together in the presence of our high priest who knows it too. You get that? We're sitting in the presence of our high priest. He knows this too as keenly as we do. And we're going to be able to, in a moment, sing the exact same words to the exact same tune and express the exact same thing together in unison. The power of that is unbelievable. Do you think God knew that? So tonight we're going to sit with the sorrow. We're going to think of the Beesons. 
and a grandson that's gone. Kristen Hubble and a son that's gone. We're going to take on the sorrow of the Rackleys, whom we don't even know, but you don't have to know to know that a tragedy like that rocks your world. And we are not going to understand, but we are going to get close. And we're going to think of a coming Christmas where an 18-year-old has to grow up and be a parent to two siblings. And we're going to think about that. Not to solve it, not to fix it. Just sit with it for a minute. It's not all that hard to imagine what that must be like. It's every parent imagines the worst happening. We've all been there. It doesn't take much to tap into a little bit of that emotion, but you know, it's not the same because after a little bit of time, we're going to come out of that, we're going to go back to life as normal, but for these other people, it's not going to return to that same normal. We can join them for a time, though. We're not going to offer explanations. We're not going to to offer express sympathy. We're not going to take up a collection. We're going to sit for a while in the grief, the confusion, and the loss. Think of those who lost their possessions, feeling uprooted at a time when they're expecting family gatherings in the home and the smells of food that they have for drink, but there, there, there aren't going to be those things in that home just this right now. Other experiences like this that are inexplicable, take a moment to sit in the tragedy and ponder what it must feel like. We're going to sit with this. Close your eyes, whatever you want to do. We're going to sit with this for 90 seconds. Now, that doesn't sound like long, but you're going to get uncomfortable. Sit with it for 90 seconds. And then let's share some lament songs.
And yet in the midst of sorrow, we remember something. The birth of Christ is the beginning of the resolution of all things pertaining to sin. Jesus came and he gave us glimpses of the future in every healing, in every restoration, in every cleansing, and even in resurrection. His death was atonement, but the process of atonement through his life provided him a grasp of understanding, experienced something of all that we do so that he could serve as, again, our high priest, so that when we turn to him and cry out to him, he can help us in our time of need. No other God in any other religion has that feature, as if God knew what we would need. And he assured us at all times he's present. The fact that Christmas, the story of Christmas itself is a mix of this joy and this tragedy is so perfectly appropriate. What wins out in the end we know is joy and we look forward to it and speed its coming. We experience some of it now and it's so sweet. It's enough to get us through the tragedies that we have to endure. We will experience that fullness one day when all of tragedy and the effects of sin are extinct. Until then we persevere. We lament. We acknowledge the very real presence of this tragedy. But we keep in our sights what is ahead, that it tempers even the things that we feel here. So we're going to close by moving out of lament without ever denying its presence into the hope of the future. Notice something in our first song, Blessed Be Your Name. Blessed be your name when life is good. Blessed be your name when it's not. Blessed be your name when the crop is great. Blessed be your name when it's not. We're singing that together. Then the second one, which is unusual, no one else would have picked this, but it has this favorite line of mine in it. It's a song called, Give Me the Bible, and while I'm here beside the open grave. While I'm here beside the open grave, there's a hole for my loved one. It's going to be put in here, but while I'm here, give me the Bible. Give me the truth. And finally, what I call now these days Veda's song. Despite this stuff, it is well with our soul. Right? It is well with our soul. It is well with our soul. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, which means abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place, when I walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your Blessed be your name on the road.
provided my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger, so why should I tremble? When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I am attacked, I'll remain confident. The one thing I ask of the Lord, the one thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. For he will conceal me there when troubles come. He will hide me in his sanctuary. He will place me out of reach on a high rock. Then I will hold my head high above my enemies who surround me. At his sanctuary, I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy, singing and praising the Lord with music. Hear me as I pray, O Lord, be merciful and answer me. My heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I am coming. Do not turn your back on me. Do not reject your servant in anger. You have always been my helper. Do not leave me now. Do not abandon me. O God of my salvation, even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. Teach me how to live, O Lord. Lead me along the right path, for my enemies are waiting for me. Do not let me fall into their hands, for they accuse me of things I've never done. With every breath, they threaten me with violence. Yet, we are confident we will see the Lord's goodness while we're here in the land of the living. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. It's through Christ's beautiful name we pray.